Amen. Thank you. The music has been a great blessing today and this evening as well. And I'm thankful for the truths that have been sung, but also the manner in which they've been sung. They've been a great blessing. Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, as we continue on our journey of spiritual warfare, victory in the spiritual battle. There is a battle raging. It's one that's raging concerning your soul. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, there is one who's an enemy of Christ, who is trying to destroy your life and damn your soul for eternity. And so that's why it's vital that you understand the importance of now's the day of salvation, now's the accepted time. And if you're a child of God, he's trying to damage your purpose for God saving you. We talked about it this morning, finding liberty and freedom Freedom not to do what you want to do, but freedom to do everything that God wants you to do. And the devil's trying to disrupt that. But thankfully, we have something far greater than the powerful evil one. We have one that is greater in us than he that is in the world. And that's Christ Jesus. Uh, tonight after the service, we'll be meeting over in the fellowship hall for those who are going to be a part of our ministry refresher uh, course. And I think we have 25, 26 couples that are signed up, and uh, it's going to be a, a great blessing. Uh, we have uh, Brother Chris Cherry, Chef Cherry's made some barbecue sandwiches for those who are, are part of that, and, and that's going to be a great help. And then I, I want, want to recognize those who are helping our child care. Now, some thought I was serious when I mentioned Brother Yusef Baker leading this. No, no, he's not leading this, and and I don't know which is worse, their, their confidence in Brother Yusef Baker that he could do this or their lack of confidence in me that I would assign Yusef Baker to leading the marriage seminar. But um, either way, that's what Rick Jensen thought. So we'll go with it from there. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but, um, but I do want to recognize those who are standing in to help with child care. And so those who are helping with our child care, uh, would you stand up? I want to recognize you, and I, th I think it's a, a great, great blessing to be able to, I'm going to say just Yusef Baker is going to help with that, but we do have others. And so I think, um, thank you so much. Thank you for that, and I think practically everyone, um, one of our college group, but a couple are able to step in, and thank you for the, the younger ones, the high schoolers as well. And uh, that's a great, a great blessing to allow our couples to be able to, to meet. Also, I had a, let's see if I have my flyer here. I had, we, we have a brochure back there in the back. Oh, here it is. Um, by Dr. Rick Flanders. We had these and ran out of them. We got a restock of these. Why we use the King James Version of the Bible and, um, and this will be just a couple of dollars, but if you don't have a couple of dollars, you can take it. They're in the back, and if you just want to take it and put a couple of dollars in the offering, um, you're welcome to do so. But, but I thought this was a help. Dr. Flanders had done a lot of research over the years, but I like this for a number of reasons. One, because of how simple it is. And um, there's lots of books. I've read lots of books. And a lot of books are very technical because there's a technical aspect to it. But, but sometimes it, it can be confusing because if you have to have a doctorate in, 
and uh, linguistics to be able to understand some of those, then, then people like us are left out. And so Brother Flanders just goes through some basic reasons, and I'll mention these. One, theological reasons. Then he gives two, textual reasons. Then number three, some philosophical reasons. Number four, cultural reasons. Number five, practical reasons. And then in the back he has, and again, this is only um, 12 pages. And so on the back couple pages, one of the reasons people say I don't like to use the King James is because the words are hard to understand. So in the back he lists 90 words and he gives the meaning. And um, so for example, um, when it says wrath, W-R-O-T-H, simply means angry. It's just an old King James word. A lot of these are old English words. And if you um, went through uh, some of your old literature, you'd see some of these things. But this is available. And, and I know it may not be something that anyone here may feel like you need, but maybe there's a need in being able to explain it, why we use the King James. And just give you this, just for a practical thing as well. Um, we use one particular hymnal, and um, are there better hymnals? I think there are, and we've looked at buying other hymnals, but um, whatever one we use, we're going to use the same one. And if you decided to use the one you like, and somebody over here used the one they like, and Brother Autry said, turn to hymns number whatever, and everyone turns to the hymn that they like, that's by that same number, but it's a different song, it'll be quite a confusing song service. And so there's some practical reasons. One of the things about the King James is that it's the only version that's been used in every major revival. Think about that. It's the book that, it's the one that C.H. Spurgeon used in the revivals that he was a part of. And so I, I, think, I think that there's um, a, a quite significant and substantive reason to use it. And um, so it's just something practical. Anybody could, could have that and carry it and read it and I think benefit from it. If you have questions, please understand. Uh, no, no questions are... Um, or off uh, the grid of being asked. And if you want to get a, a good answer, ask a good question that you have. And so if we could help in answering some of those things, you may ask somebody and they don't know the answer, then, then ask somebody else. And, and there are times I don't know the answer, but, but I recognize that's a good question. And if you give me some time, I'll get the answer. And, and um, somebody asked also if we'd go back to, I'd, at one time years ago, we had on Wednesday nights, you ask a question, you can submit it, and we'll be glad to answer maybe a Bible question or a philosophy or why we do what we do. It's just somebody asked, would we be willing to do it? And we did, and then no one asked questions. And so um, I answered the questions you should have asked. And, uh, but, but if you would like to do that, maybe we can go back to doing that. Um, just Because I want you to understand. I don't want you just to do because we do it. I want you to figure out there's some reasons behind the, the things that we do. At least we try to be intentional with that. All right, Ephesians chapter 6. Anybody have this passage memorized yet? Yeah, you're going to get it. At least it ought to sound familiar, right? Let's stand and we'll read our passage together beginning with verse number 10. We'll go down to verse number 18. In verse number 10, 
And let's do this. Let's do this responsively. I'll read verse 10. You read verse 11. I'll read verse 12. You read verse 13. And um, then we'll read verse 18 together, okay? So I'll begin with verse 10, then you come in on verse number 11. Verse number 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Together, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness." and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, which is the word of God, and everyone together praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Tonight I want to preach on this thought, victory through prayer. Victory through prayer. We'll not have anything on the uh, screen tonight and I just could not put this in an outline form, but uh, we'll try to measure it and uh, and help communicate any key parts here if you're going to write it down. But victory through prayer. Thank you. Please be seated. In 1952, a Princeton doctoral student asked Albert Einstein a question. What original dissertation research is left? And I'm intrigued and I'm inspired by Einstein's answer. Einstein said... Find out about prayer. R.A. Torrey said, and we've heard this many times, prayer can do anything that God can do. And as God can do everything, prayer is omnipotent. Prayer can do anything that God can do. Jerry Vines, uh, who was commenting on this verse, said, The greatest of Christian warriors is measured not by scars on his back, but bruises on his knees. The best warrior is a kneeling warrior, calling out for his general to be glorified at all costs. Prayer is an indispensable weapon in spiritual warfare. Henry Blackaby said on the same verse, verse 18, prayer is the most practical work God assigns us as he sends us out on a mission in our world. Prayer alerts us to schemes of the evil one, and reveals God's activity. Prayer engages the work of the Spirit in our lives and in those for whom we pray. Prayer does not just prepare us for the work of the kingdom. It is the greatest work God has given us. Let me give you one other quote, and this is by Tony Evans on this verse 18. Prayer is the divine means of putting on our spiritual armor which is a reflection of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. End of quote. There was a world champion bodybuilder who went to Africa 
on a tour to promote good health and physical fitness. He visited some of the large metropolitan cities and he went to some nearby villages where the people did not have access to electricity or television. Some did not even have running water. But one day this bodybuilder was holding a fitness awareness seminar in a small remote village and he had the most interesting interruption. He had just finished demonstrating the different ways he could cause his muscles to bulge and contract all over his body, um, like Brother Autry has demonstrated on numerous times. And, <laughs> and uh, just as he was doing so, the local tribal chief stopped him, slowly making his way to where the bodybuilder was standing and demonstrating the tribal chief spoke through a translator and he said with what you have shown us I am most impressed I've never seen that many muscles on one man before well the bodybuilders used to hearing such flattery and he smiled and he gave some other poses before the crowd so they could see his physique but the tribal chief continued and he said I only have one question What do you use those muscles for? The bodybuilder answered, bodybuilding is my profession. This is my job. So you don't use those muscles for anything else? The bodybuilder replied, no. The tribal chief shook his head slowly and said, what a waste. What a waste to have all those muscles and not use them. I think the same could be said for any Christian who has access to the whole armor of God, but doesn't use it to walk in victory. I want to remind us of the principle, the overarching principle that we've, been, we've talked about since the beginning in this matter of spiritual warfare. And that is whatever is plaguing you today in the physical realm is emanating from the spiritual realm. In other words, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You said, I had some problem with flesh and blood today. Well, the people are real. The problems are real. But they're just not the root problem. And so whatever is plaguing you today in the physical realm is emanating from the spiritual realm. And we will never get to the cure if we do not address the cause. See, the enemy wants you to forget about that. The enemy wants you to focus on only what you can see. He wants you to continue to believe that your spouse is the problem. Your boss is the problem. Your friend, your drink, your drug, your emotion, or even that you are the problem. And leave it at that. All of these and more things can be manifestations of the problem, but none of those things are the root problem. The battle begins in the spiritual realm. And because you're a believer, if you're saved, you are already victorious in that realm, even when everything around you in the visible physical realm is telling you you're defeated. Because you entered into it, salvation, into an invisible position in Christ. And so you've participated in this spiritual victory called salvation. You've gone from death to life, darkness to light. But what Paul's trying to get us to see is what happened 
and spiritually in the invisible realm at our salvation, we can experience daily in the invisible realm that will affect the visible realm experientially daily. So if you want to access and walk in victory that's already yours, you have to address the physical spiritual uh, in a spiritual manner. If you do not approach the physical in a spiritual manner, you're going to continue to experience the defeat, the effects of the physical realm dominating. Again, the problems are real. The people are real. But if you only go about solving those on a physical basis, you're going to be dominated by those. So Paul gives us the secret how we can do this. We've gone through the armor. And after instructing us to put on the whole armor of God, he goes on to the next step in the process of battling spiritual warfare. Is verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You notice how often the word pray or a synonym of prayer is used in that short statement. Paul has purposefully chosen to emphasize prayer immediately following his instruction for taking up the whole armor of God. The topic of prayer has been studied. It has been written about, talked about. It's been preached on by millions of people for thousands of years. But in my interactions with believers over the last two and a half decades of full-time ministry, I've discovered that very few people actually understand prayer. When people genuinely pray and understand prayer, that understanding concerning prayer, I'm talking about the Bible's information concerning prayer, it changes how you live. It'll change how you pray, whether or not you pray, and the expectations that you have when you pray. See, for many people, even some Christians, prayer is kind of like the national anthem before a sporting event. It gets the game started, but it has absolutely no relevance to what's happening on the field. Prayer is merely a habit for some. For example, when most of us pray before we eat, we don't really utilize our mind as we're praying. We just say the same general thing each time. Just this past week, I sit down with the family, and I know your family is different around the table than mine, but... You know, we're, we're getting down, sit down. Yes, you are going to eat this. And, and um, no, we're not going to talk about this. And no, we're not doing this at the table. Sit down. we got to pray. Everyone hold hands. Hands. Everyone's got hands. You didn't wash your hands. You go wash your hands before we hold hands. And, and then we get back and, all right, let's pray. And I prayed and, and got done with, at, towards the end of my prayer. And Lord, bless the meal. Thank you for loving us. Amen. And I included something I hadn't included in my prayer before. I said, bye-bye. <laughs> and I thought, well, hopefully none of my kids saw this, and maybe my wife didn't notice it. And Christy went to say something to the kids, and she looked at me and said, did you say bye-bye? And I said, I did. I told the Lord bye-bye. And um, we need help when it comes to praying. <laughs> 
Or maybe before we go to bed and we pray at night, we're just reciting a call for blessing and protection with a little bit of gratitude thrown in for good measure, but prayers just become kind of a routine. Another way to look at it is that prayers become like a spare tire. We want it there in case we need it. But if we don't feel as if we need it, we want it out of the way where we don't have to deal with it or see it. And then when we do need it, like some who you get the flat tire, wasn't what you expected, wasn't on the plan, but you know I've got a tire, now I've got to figure out how to use it. And that's the way prayers become for a lot of people. And that's why I believe that we need to understand the significance of prayer. This is not designed, and I, I, it's been my endeavor for years, never to preach on prayer so that we would feel guilty. There are certain subjects we could talk about, and every one of us feel guilty. Prayer is one of those. Because who, who prays like they should? or as much as we could. Another one is loving God. We can preach a message on that, and every one of us falls short. It's not my desire, nor do I believe it's God's desire that we feel bad, but rather that we understand more and we embrace the fact that God is wanting an intimate relationship through us, and prayer is one of those. Let me give you a thought here, and these are going to be just some random thoughts from this verse. One, I want you to see... There is a strategy of prayer. Prayer is earthly permission for heavenly interference. When we pray, the men prayed, and we are challenged. If you don't come to the men's prayer, I encourage you to come to the men's prayer time on Sunday mornings and Men uh, use their challenge by one of the men this morning, Brother Caleb Brooks did a, a, a tremendous job challenging us with God's mindset concerning the world and, and the people around us. And, and then we go to prayer. And one of the things that we're doing as I looked at what's the significance of our praying? Well, prayer is earthly permission for heavenly interference. You say, well, why does heaven need permission? Why do I have to give heaven permission to do anything down here? Well, part of that we can see and answer by looking at God's design and how the world functions. You see, when God created the heavens and earth, He placed mankind on it. God's uh, mindset was, let man rule. And for whatever reason, God chose to give mankind rulership over the earth. In doing this, he did two things. One, mankind now has the option of leaving God out. Romans chapter 1 gives us a summary of the results of what happens when God is left out. But the second option that we have when God says, let man rule over the earth, mankind also has the option of calling on God to join in on the rulership that God was willing to give us. There are many things that God can do, but doesn't do simply because he has not been, been requested to do them. Can you think of anything? There are many things that God can do, but he doesn't do simply because he's not been requested to do them. Anything come to your mind? 
Salvation, that's one of the big ones. Who does God want to see saved? Everybody. And He's made provision for every single person to be saved. But He will only save those who give Him permission to save their soul. That's the, the way God has designed. But when you go to God and you ask for His divine intervention based on His Word, His truth, His promises, His character, you'll find He intervenes in response to your faith. He'll intervene in response to your desire, your submission to Him, and your acknowledgement of your need for Him. Now, you can leave God out. He's given you that option. You can act independently of God all day long. But you can also bring him into your situation and watch him show up in ways you've never even imagined. That's what's done through prayer. Now keep in mind, please keep this in mind. I struggled years ago in, in going on the revival journey, trying to understand um, the scriptures teaching on, on this matter of revival and experiencing God. And I read a lot of revival history. And, and here's one of the things that can get us off track is if we ever read uh, the stories of men, biographies and autobiographies, we read history of what God did in the past and we try to interpret the Bible based upon those books and books alone, it can leave us confused. I'd read a lot of times where you find a revivalist that would seemingly command God to send revival here right now. And, and I'd hear even talking about the challenge of commanding God. And um, I mean, just go ahead and finish the thought. The way we ought to view history, revival history, and the works of God is through the lens of Scripture. And what history ought to be is just an explanation or a demonstration of Bible truth. And so I can look at Bible truth and see what God says and I can see it taking place in history as, as God taught. But keep this in mind. Here's the thought. Prayer can never force God to do anything. Prayer can never force God to do anything. I don't care what Benny Hinn or Oral Ripoff says or Swagger, none of those. It makes no difference. Prayer can never force God to do anything. You can never make God do something He didn't intend or plan to do. Even if you prayed all day long, every day, God is not a puppet on our prayer string. He simply is not. But what prayer does is call on God to intervene in ways that he's already declared that he wants to intervene. You get that? Amen. See, God's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want anybody to go to hell. But if you reject Jesus and you take your last breath without Jesus and you leave this world God's not going to intervene for you after you die. You will face the consequences no matter the broken heart of our Savior. See, God is not going to intervene in any way that He's not already declared that He wants to intervene. He's just waiting for you to ask Him. James 5.16. We went through the series on James. You can look this up if you'd like to go through the message, but... 
James says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. And in this context, he says that ye may be able to be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. See, James begins by giving a condition for healing to occur. That condition is prayer. And following the condition of prayer, James makes a general statement that much will be accomplished through the fervent prayer of a righteous man. Listen to the phrase, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He doesn't say that only a little will be accomplished. He doesn't even say that some things will be accomplished. James is clear when he says much will be accomplished through the effective prayer of a righteous man. But pastor, I'm dealing with strongholds in my life. I'm struggling. I'm not what most people would consider a righteous person. I hear you. None of us can claim to be perfect. But can I remind you, going back to what we looked at in this study When we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, Jesus Christ is the righteousness that God sees in you if you are saved and you access His righteousness when you by grace through faith walk in dependence upon Him. You can access what your position already says. So it's not based upon your perfection. It's based upon His perfection. And when you pray, and you get heaven's permission to intervene in your situation, God says, much can happen. James 5, 17, he goes on, next verse, Elias was a man subject. Elias is referring to who? Elijah, subject to like passions. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, as you. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. In other words, I, James, Paul, I don't want you to throw in the towel and believe that God only worked with those good Old Testament prophets. Or God only worked for those who wrote the books of the Bible and the New. Don't throw in the towel. James is telling us that Elijah was just like you. Elijah's just like me. He had a human nature just like any man. But Elijah earnestly prayed that it would not rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then it says in the verse 18, uh, Brother Cherry, can we go to uh, James here? I'm spending a little bit longer here than what I was planning. And go to James chapter 5. We're now at verse number 18. Then after three years and six months, it says he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. In this passage, we see an ordinary man with a nature just like yours and mine. He had the power to both stop the rain, start it again, simply through prayer. Elijah got heaven to move on earth by calling the will of God in heaven down to earth. He saw a problem on earth. He called on heaven to solve it. Heaven heard and heaven responded. Now I want you to look at this scenario a little bit more closely. And let's go over to 1 Kings chapter number 18. Can we do that? And this is where James is getting the story from. And we go over to 1 Kings chapter 18. 
In verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Now, what did Elijah experience there according to verse 1? Remember from last week's message? Elijah had a rhema from the word of God. He had a specific declaration, announcement by God. God told Elijah that he would send the rain. Then the end of chapter 18 gives us greater insight into this. Look at verse number 41. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, behold, there riseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, go up and say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot, get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. See, once again, there's so much theology packed into this, this one passage, but I'm going to give you the cliff note version. Here it is. God said, God said it would rain. Elijah prayed about what God had already said. That's significant. Elijah didn't make stuff up and attribute it to God. However, God's declaration of rain, it did not come to pass. In other words, it didn't actually rain, even though God said it's going to rain. It did not rain until after Elijah prayed that it would rain. You see, even in the, in the course of prophecy, God's prophesying, it's going to rain. But it didn't rain until Elijah prayed about it. Why? Because part of prayer strategy is to get permission from heaven to intervene in situations here upon earth. And even though God had already declared it in the heavenly realm, not a single raindrop hit the earth until it got called down by Elijah on the earth. Can you see why Jesus would say, you ought to pray that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, prayer called down what God had already intended to do, what God had already intended to do, however, did not happen until prayer drew it down. See, Elijah's prayer didn't make God do something he had not intended to do. But Elijah's prayer did reach into heaven and it did grab and draw down what God had already told Elijah that he wanted to do. I mean, step back to, to maybe um, to give our, our mind a little bit of, of simplicity here. It's God's will that how many be saved? And the Bible tells us that the Spirit of God is who is the drawer, the convictor of mankind. 
It's the Holy Spirit that will draw somebody, convincing them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But does God need us? Well, maybe it's not a fair question. I don't know if he needs anything, but God and the economy of, uh, of mankind and his kingdom and the gospel work, he's chosen to use his people as vessels. Do we find anywhere in the Bible people interceding for the souls of others? Yes. Do you find people who were, in fact, you see Jesus Christ himself weeping over the condition of people because he would have drawn them in, but they would not. Why? Because he's burdened. He knows the will of his father. He came to do the will of his father, but God's not going to work independent of people cooperating with him. See, another thing to notice about Elijah's prayer, I want you to just see this. We passed it here, but something that stood out is the form in which Elijah prayed. I think this has a lot to do with it. You know, we, we can get into the Pharisee mindset of making this a very um, um, visible, very costly um, Fasting and putting so much into it. It's not what we're talking about, and that's not what Elijah's doing. But there is something about this posture and this form. Look at verse 41. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. Where did the preacher go? He went up to the top of Carmel, and what did he do? He cast himself down upon the earth, and he put his face between his knees. It may not seem much to you or me in reading this in the 21st century. I want to tell you it meant something very powerful in the time period and the culture in which Elijah lived. See, when a woman would give birth in Elijah's day, she didn't have the luxury of modern hospital beds. But what she would often do is position herself by crouching and placing her face between her knees and, and putting herself in a position of travail so that in doing so, she's not creating the child's life, but she's simply providing the best possible way for that life already existing to be brought into a new realm. Elijah didn't merely bow his head and close his eyes. He didn't hum a hymn or ask for a raindrop. Scripture tells us that Elijah positioned himself in a posture of travail. See, prayer is the work done in faith that accesses all that God has already planned to do. And when you and I get serious about coming to God, you're going to find a God that's been serious about us coming to Him all along. It's earthly participation in heavenly delivery. And we see from Elijah, who's been given to us in the book of James as an example, effective prayer. Effective prayer, prayer that can involve travailing, can solve any problem. God does something, too, in this matter of prayer with Elijah. One of the things that stood out was it is during prayer that God, He discloses secrets. Secrets. When we see Elijah pray, we find that prayer should be predicated, we've said, already on what God has declared and willed to do. 
But in order to do effectively, we need to study His Word. Remember last week? That's graphe. When we understand and we study the word graphe, the, the, the main portion of Scripture, Scripture in itself, we're looking to understand the message. That's logos. And when we study graphe and we get a hold of the logos, the message of that word, what it ought to do is move us to the rhema. And that is becoming intimate with the very basic nuance of that command or truth or challenge to us. See, the Bible tells us that God has secrets and that He's willing to share them with you and with me. Secrets are special things you tell only those people who are closest to you. Unless you're the kind that just blabbed to anybody who'll listen to you, but but mainly, we tell secrets to people that we confide in, that we're close to. And God wants you to be so close to Him that He can lean over and whisper a secret. A secret that can be found in the Word of God, but a, a secret into the ear of one of His choice servants. You'll find in Psalm 25 and verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. And He will show them His covenant. Wouldn't you like to be on that kind of intimate terms with the Lord? You can. In fact, you're as close to God as you want to be. You're as close to the Lord right now as you want to be. When God reveals to you His secrets, that is His promises and His Word, that is when you're able to take God's Word and send it right back to Him. That is when you can say, God... You said it in your word. See, prayer is holding God accountable to what he's already said he will do. That's why I love the song that we sometimes sing. Sometimes Luigi plays in the invitation. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his secrets, his word. So we see that prayer is not simply seeing something. Something I want and claiming it. That'll get us into some trouble. Sometimes uh, what we're talking about is understanding the objective truth of God's word as the foundation for our praying. Now, God does work. There are things in the subjective realm. Um, how do I know which person I'm to marry? How did I know that I was to come to Canaan Baptist Church? You don't find those specifics in the objective graphe of Scripture. Well, God does work subjectively, but God's subjective work must always be based upon His objective truth. So what, what are you saying and what should I do? Well, before you leap into, I just want it. I just feel that I have to have it. Why don't you make sure that you are in accordance and in alignment with all the objective truth that God has given to us? See, don't expect the secrets to be spoken to us of God's subjective will when we're not really all that concerned with all of His objective will. Does that make sense? If God didn't tell you he's going to give you that nice new job with, with the corner office that has the, the glass on each side, then you can pray until you're blue in the face 
And that nice new job will still belong to someone else. If God didn't tell you he's going to give you that pay raise or that vehicle or that whatever it might be, if God did not, it doesn't matter the desire, it doesn't matter how much you prayed, how long you fasted, how many people you rallied to your cause. The foundation of prayer, get this, the foundation of prayer is knowing what God has already said. See, God has given us literally thousands of promises in His Word. Um, I, I think something like 30,000 promises. Someone said, how do you know? I said, because I counted them. Why do you laugh? No, I read it somewhere. I didn't count them. But um, he, I encourage you, start with the promises. Jack Cutson, who pastored Northside Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, just 45 minutes for where I grew up in Statesville, he used to talk about writing STP beside passages in his Bible, scriptures tried and proven. So you want to get the foundation of prayer, knowing what God's already said, start with the promises, start with what God has declared. We do ourselves a disservice when we don't take the time to learn and to know God's word. Our prayers become vague. Our prayers become empty or they become full of things God never intended to do. Either way, we, we end up tossing our armor into the back of the closet and saying, ah, I didn't work for me. Then we'll call someone or meet up with our friends and try to find a human solution or at least someone who can give us sympathy for what we're battling. But listen, friend, you need answers much more than you need sympathy. People think I just don't have a heart because when somebody's suffering and going through problems that we're supposed to just weep with those who weep. Well, but when there's an answer and you don't have to be struggling and suffering and stumbling and falling and blubbering, why not get to the answer? But what some people want, all they want is sympathy. They don't want answers. Why don't we go to the way, the truth, and the life? He's got answers, and no one can sympathize better with us than Jesus, the friend that sticks closer than a brother. I remember um, being in a revival meeting, and a young lady came up, and she said, um, I need to talk to you. And I said, sure. Didn't know who she was. I think I got her name. But she was very teary-eyed. Her lip was trembling, and and, um, and then she put her head down and she began to cry and, and her crying became a little bit more uncontrollable. And, and, um, and she said, um, uh, I've lost my purity. And she just began to sob and to sob. And, and a lady, a well-meaning lady, I'm sure, came up to her and put her arm around her and said, dear, dear, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Uh, don't, 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 don't worry about it. It'll be okay. And I finally said, ma'am, you need to leave her alone. It's not okay until she unloads the truck and she deals with the sin. Right now she's under conviction and God brought her under conviction to bring her to cleansing so that God can bring her to healing. You putting your arm around her is not the answer alone. Jesus is the answer. You need heaven to invade earth. You need God to get into your situation. And the only way to access heaven's authority on earth is through prayer. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. I need to wrap up here.
whenever working on these, and I'm, I'll be preaching a revival meeting here in a couple of weeks. In fact, going to Jake Mooney's uh, home church there in Texas, be preaching a meeting. I'll be preaching a couple of men's meetings, and one in Louisiana, one in Virginia. And, and um, I'm familiar with navigating through revival kind of preaching. I'm familiar with that. And I understand, and I feel the, the challenge always and when it comes to preaching, the, 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 the pressure that has been placed upon us to make it appealing. And come up with the, with the pithy statements, the cute outlines, and, and, and keep it really, really short. But I also recognize in all the places where I've seen that kind of mindset, I've been at this long, but I've been at it two and a half decades, I've also seen people who don't know how to pray. I've seen people who don't know how to get a hold of God. I've seen people that are crumbling under very seemingly insignificant, trivial things. We're not facing persecution like our Christian brethren in other parts of the world. We're just struggling because someone hurt my feelings. We're struggling because someone sat in my seat. We're struggling because the preacher says we ought to be faithful to church. We're struggling because I didn't get what I want my way the way I want. I didn't get what I felt like I should get or I deserve. And what we're doing is we are living off of sermonettes. And what sermonettes produce are Christianettes. And so I'm, I'm well aware of what it, if I step into a revival meeting, the preaching is completely different and step away from the notes and, and, and because we're going, I'm, I'm doing some plowing at that point. What I'm doing here as your pastor on most basis of preaching is I'm trying to give you the building blocks that would be necessary to being an equipped disciple of Jesus Christ. The battle's real. There is an enemy, whether you, you've ever run into him or not. There, there is a battle that's raging. There is also power from God that is available. And what happens is we tend to just get lulled to sleep and we just move with the rest of the people around us and we think, well, they think I'm okay, I think they're okay, so we must be okay. And we measure our success by a completely different standard. That's why I sometimes wonder, how was it that when God was very clear, you leave Egypt, you go to the promised land, they decided 40 years, let's just hunker down here in the wilderness. Well, I'll tell you why, because they had some people that challenged them and said, we can't do this. I think we should just stay put. And those 10 spies outnumbered the two that said, is anything too hard for God? We can't do this, but God can. And the 10 persuaded millions. And they wandered in the wilderness. God was good to his people in the wilderness. But he has so much more in store. I'm grateful for our men who are on the journey of getting pure. What's the point of getting pure? Is it just so you can enjoy purity? No, purity always precedes power. I'm glad for a brother, Don Nico, who invests in, 
and uh, conquer series with a couple men on Sundays and and um, Brother Foote, who does so on Thursdays, and Brother Dan, who's doing so, and, and Captain LeBee organizing these things, and many men who've gone through it and, and are back through it and are helping others get into it. The, the truth of the matter is, the battle's real. And we've got to get to where we're more than just getting these pithy statements down. We need to learn how to put on the whole armor of God and how to embrace this matter of praying. Getting a hold of heaven's permission to get down into my earthly situation. Well, uh, there have got a few other comments, but I'm not going to make those. I just want to end with this, which we're very familiar with. George Duffield wrote it this way. In fact, let's go ahead and stand together as we get ready for the invitation fits with the song. George Duffield wrote, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. That's what Paul's been saying. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of the flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting or lacking there. Lord, I'm thankful that you've given us everything we need to live victorious, to be successful, to be a success for Jesus rather than a statistic because of not being prepared. Lord, we can do the two things that are our options. We can leave you out of our equation or we can bring you into it. And I pray that you'd help us to see that there's not a hybrid of those two. It's not us bringing you in as a coach makes the decisions as to the play. We're not calling the shots. We're simply getting a hold of your mind that's been given to us in your word and understanding what you're up to and what you want to accomplish. And in prayer, we meet with you so that we can experience much. And Lord, I thank you that you're up to much. And you want us to be a part of it. Would you revive us that we be people of prayer? Just like Elijah. Elijah was a normal man like we are, as, as we are. So we can be effective in praying like he was. And would you revive us and help us on this journey and in this school of prayer? Lord, we love you. We thank you. Help us in this invitation to, by faith, be good doers of truth. As the piano plays, just invite us to trust and obey in whatever way God has spoken to you. If you need help, we have counselors, we have people who'd be glad to pray with you and, and be a help to you, to talk to you. If you need some help regarding your eternity, we're You'll spend an eternity. That's the most important thing. Let us help you before it's too late.